The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, what was I going to say? <laughs> oh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest this time around is a uh, lobbyist, law professor, and author, Chris McKelly. Chris, thank you. For Hi, John and Tim. Hi. Um, and so, Chris, you know all things statistics and numbers. You get more numbers, put more numbers together each session in the legislature than I've ever seen. And I, you sent a few the other day to me. Uh, which I was sort of surprised at. And that is there were more bills, over 625 bills introduced for the 2021 session. Um, in, that's in the assembly. Uh, for 2021, I, so I assume that means two months, December, part of December and through the end of January. Is that correct? If you on December 7th, as they normally do uh, for their organizing session, the first day of the new session, about a uh, hundred bills between the two houses, um, that that 600 plus figure is the assembly and Senate uh, combined uh, together. And um, we did have a, a large number of bills from the two budget committees. We uh-huh. had roughly double, almost double the normal number. We usually get about 50 intent bills, uh, which serve as trailer bills for the budget. And both houses do about 50. This year, there were actually 176, 90 in the Senate and 86 in the assembly. So to be fair, we got another 76 bills more than we normally do out of the two budget committees. And that's because of the governor's request for, you know, early budget actions in March and then our normal budget in June. And of course, as we have done for the past decade, uh, we have additional budget changes, including a budget bill junior and other trailer bills. Uh, done usually at the end of session in, say, August, September timeframe. So, Chris, what is a budget bill junior? Uh, That is uh, the term of affection for a bill that makes modifications to the budget bill. So, as you're probably aware, the state constitution, uh, of course, requires a budget bill to be adopted, which is the only bill that is allowed multiple appropriate multiple items of appropriation. Um, And the reality is, is that sometimes there are errors or or more modifications that are to be made. And those are done by a, if you will, a trailer bill. (laughs) Uh, But of course we, we reserve the trailer bill designation for the bills that trail the budget that make statutory changes to implement provisions of the budget. But we also have kind of a trailing uh, bill to the main budget bill and legislative staff designated it years ago as budget bill junior. Uh, Chris, why would there be more legislation, do you think, introduced during a pandemic legislative session as it is now than it was 
in pre-pandemic times, it seems it's harder to gather together. It seems to me just on the natural, it's sort of logistics here are a lot different. And yet they're more this time. For example, you mentioned 2017. There are about 469 bills introduced this time around. There's 625. So people love working out of their homes or what? what's going on here? Why? You know, what, what do you think is going on here? Well, I guess to um, get a more thorough determination to answer your question, we'll actually have to wait until the official deadline, which is February 19th. So in about just over two weeks uh, from tomorrow, in fact, to know for certain if we're going to have a larger volume the numbers that you are citing are looking back at the first two months of bill introductions for the 2021 session, which of course starts in early December, the first Monday in December, um, and then comparing it to the prior two first year sessions, that's 19, 2019 and 2017. And we saw a bump of about 75 or so bills between 2017 and 2019, uh, and another slightly less than 100 uh, more bills in 2021 than the 2019 session, if folks are following along. Meaning there's been growth the last two years, but keep in mind it's a snapshot in time through January. Will this increased number hold through the February 19th introduction deadline. That will be the real determination, John, as to whether or not in, despite a, a year of pandemic, uh, we will have a record number of bills introduced. Perhaps they continue on this trajectory and we have a larger number and perhaps not. Um, it's interesting last year, of course, as we know, the pandemic and the stay-at-home stay orders uh, occurred in March, several weeks after the deadline for introducing bills. So we had about 2,300 bills introduced last year, which was roughly on par with prior even-numbered years, the second year of a two-year session. However, at the direction of leadership, the uh, assembly and Senate members reduced that bill load by 75%. So three out of every four bills dropped by the wayside. Is there a partisan piece to this, Chris? I mean, is, uh, obviously there are more Republicans than there are Democrats, uh, excuse me, more Democrats and Republicans in both houses overwhelmingly, but- yeah. Per capita well, introductions, I mean, is there, what conclusions, if any, can you draw about, about how they introduce bills on a partisan basis? Yeah, it's, I think what we found last year was, well, let me, let me answer in a couple of ways. Uh, as you know, I, I track gubernatorial actions. Mm -hmm. That is the bills that get down to the governor's desk. And of course, what, how many bills the governor signs, how many he vetoes. Um, historically, those numbers are relatively low for Republicans in the two houses, in both the Assembly and the Senate, in comparison to the percentage of seats that they hold. Uh -huh. 
if you look last year, yes, there were quite a few Republican bills that those members wanted to uh, have heard in the 2020 legislative session, but very few of them were set for hearing. I know several committees didn't set a single Republican authored bill for a hearing. You'll recall last year, the speaker and the pro tem gave authority, not that they didn't have it, perhaps we should say direction to the policy committee chairs since they were only allowed one single hearing to hear their house of origin bills and then a second single hearing to hear the other houses bills, um, those committee chairs got to determine uh, which bills that they would hear. And so the numbers were quite low last year in terms of Republican heard bills and therefore the number of bills that got to the governor's desk and were ultimately acted upon were even lower than they normally are. Will that occur again this year? Obviously that's TBD. Um, although the policy committee hearings have not been officially uh, noticed in the assembly daily file and the Senate daily file, uh, we are told that each committee, policy committee that is, will have at least two hearings um, for House of Origin bills, and perhaps some of the bigger committees that have higher bill loads, you know, health, education, uh, judiciary, et cetera, might get even a third uh, committee hearing. So are we'll have bills, to see. In this are there bills without numbers, uh, or, or they haven't received numbers yet? A couple days ago, we had a story about uh, pesticide policies related yep. to fees changing. And we didn't see that there was a bill number associated with this legislation, but they'd already, they expected it to be heard in a budget in subcommittees later this, uh, later this month. So there's no number out there, but the issue is out there. Is that common? Well, that often happens. You know, a lot of proponents of bills, either the sponsors, the outside interest group that brought forth the bill, yeah. or the idea or the proposal <clears throat> might have a media campaign or might try to, you know, do a letter to the editor or an op-ed piece, such as in Capital Weekly, that's widely read amongst the capital community. Very widely um, read. Very widely read, in fact. <laughs> um, and podcasts widely heard as well, yes. but Very widely heard. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes, you know, that occurs before the bill is introduced. Yeah. I think it's more common though, to be fair, that people do it after that bill is in print so that they can cite the bill and the author, and of course, hope to you know, gather support for people to write letters or call their legislator or contact their legislator in support of you know, AB 123 or SB 456. But sometimes it's used as an education effort or you know, to, to alert uh, legislators and staff and other interest groups and state agencies that, hey, this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. Okay. Uh, Chris, you're a, a, an author, as I mentioned at the top of the show, and uh, two books, Introduction to California State Government, Introduction to Drafting Legislation in California. I looked carefully in the titles. I didn't see any sex language uh, 
or scandal in there, which of course is the first thing I look for. So it's not there. So I've got to assume that clearly they are dry reading, John. (laughs) So, but these are these textbooks for uh, law school classes or these things for the general public is how would you characterize these? Or maybe, well, I would, I I would hope that they are educational for anyone who would uh, pick them up and read them. Uh, as you can imagine from the title, the introduction to legislative drafting is pretty specialized and for people who are either doing it or are interested in it, to be fair, as opposed to the introduction to California government and the entities that make up our state government. You know, what transpired was um, starting with the, the legislative drafting <clears throat> about half of the states uh, actually publish drafting manuals that their states use, that they're equivalent of the legislative council that we have in California uh, utilizes. And that can be everything from, you know, do they use uh, shall and may like California does, or do they use must in store instead of shall? Um, you know, whether or not they use, um, you know, other terminology, um, how they put together sentences, how they define terms and everything else. I've always been interested myself in drafting and California, unfortunately, is one of those states that does not, in fact, publish its drafting manual. There isn't a formal one, from my understanding, through friends who work at the Office of Legislative Council or the Legislative Council Bureau uh, here in California, Uh, but they use instead a compilation of materials. And so I, over the last couple of years, have written on different topics related to drafting bills and decided to put them together in a textbook. And yes, um, hopefully this fall we'll be teaching Uh, with another colleague, a legislative drafting course. And certainly we would use this book, but ultimately I think it's of value to both legislators, their staff, certainly lobby groups, state agencies, anyone involved in the legislative process to get a better understanding of what are the issues um, that legislative council uh, has to consider when drafting bills. I've got a chapter on drafting penal statutes or, you know, the penal code, criminal laws. I've got a chapter related to um, or drafting urgency clause statutes um, or creating, drafting a bill that creates a new regulatory scheme to license and regulate a profession. And some of the questions that the attorneys in legislative council have to consider, because if you think about it, in most instances for either a, an interest group or legislators and their staff, in many instances, they simply submit a request that says, hey, I'd like to you know, create a, a licensing scheme to regulate X profession. And that's all legislative council gets. Why do you think California does not have, it seems like an obvious thing to have, why doesn't California have not have its own sort of drafting manual? Well, again, John, they 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 have 
a manual and actually, you know, lots of documents that, that make up that manual, they have for unknown reasons chosen not to make it public. <laughs> and so, you know, in my mind, at least for people who are um, nerdish, uh, like myself. No, 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 that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not nerdy at all. Um, well, it's okay, because others have called me worse than nerdy. But that was, that was the name given to me by a colleague last week when I explained that others have, have called it something retentive. But uh, Revenge of the nerds, believe yes, me. Yes, exactly. Okay. No, but what I was going to... We're doing this on Zoom, and I do notice in the background that you have a McKaylee sports jersey, so you can't be that nerdy. I mean, unless it's like badminton or something. Uh, it was actually <laughs> a gift. It was a gift from my client, uh, Dave Cavill, the president of the Oakland Athletics MLB team. Uh, the, the A's are a client, and a couple of years ago, we did an important bill authored by Assemblyman Rob Bonta, who, of course, represents Oakland. Uh, to help uh, clear the way for their new ballpark at Howard Terminal near Jack London Square in downtown Oakland. And as a thank you gift, um, Dave had a jersey made and framed. The 50 was, is not my age, but instead it represents the 50th anniversary of the A's in Oakland. So it's actually wow. a gift from a client, yeah. Cool. But see, not nerdy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, but on the other book, John, on the intro to California government, um, I'm going to admit another nerdy thing. Um, I've done a couple of projects, including those two books, in uh, during the um, 2020 portion of the pandemic. Um, I've written over the years, as you know, published a number of times uh, by you in Capital Weekly. Uh, piece is not just about the legislature, the legislative process, uh, the different entities, some of the state agencies, the three branches of government. And so over the course of the last four or five years, I have quite a number of them. And here's the nerdy part. I start, if that wasn't nerdy enough, but I started <laughs> reading, I think it ended up being about 11. And granted, they're not long in some instances, uh, books about California state government and politics. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. And I wanted to see what they had uh, because I've always been interested. One of these days, I will hopefully teach a college course on, you know, California state and local government or California politics. Different, different colleges and universities use different descriptions for those classes. Anyways, I always thought about doing a book and certainly had enough, but started writing additional pieces. And I found a couple of things. Um, one is most of them are uh, uh, a little outdated, shall we say. I mean, some of the most recent ones were like published in 2011 or 2012 and many of them long before that. Also, a lot of them, in my mind, have given short shrift to what we often call the regulatory state. You know, as part of the executive branch of government, most people think just of the chief executive, i.e. the governor. Uh, but we have over 200 state agencies, departments, boards, commissions that have rulemaking authority, you know, and that make up the regulatory state, whether it's licensing and regulating different professions or, you know, Caltrans and DGS and all of that. 
And so I think one of the things that differentiates my book on state government as opposed to a lot of the other books that are used as texts for the co- a lot of college courses on California state government. Um, number one, it's far more recent um, and talks about, um, you know, more recent goings on, but it also spends a fair amount of time, again, looking at all those rulemaking bodies. Uh, we have, you know, again, over 200 of them uh, that are very busy promulgating regulations and otherwise enforcing and interpreting all those laws that the legislature adopts. You know, I always jokingly say that many of my brethren and sometimes myself as well think that, ah, once AB 123 gets passed and signed by the governor, it's all over. It's far from over because in many of those instances that AB 123 requires regulations to be adopted. And of course, how do those agencies, again, interpret and enforce those statutes? You know, the statute is, a, is effectively a, in a book, in a code, but if somebody doesn't interpret it, apply it, enforce it, then it's not worth much of the paper that it's written on, as the saying goes, right? And so I do a lot of exploring of the regulatory state in my state government book as well. Your data is very bloodless. It's very direct. <laughs> There's no partisan. I mean, my, my uh, experience over the years in Sacramento is that mm-hmm. the legislation is defined by partisanship and policy uh, is developed uh, between partisan players. That's just the outsider. That's the reporter's view, I guess, in my view. Um, so when you see data that describes a legislature without the partisan component, I always feel like, What's he really saying? What's really going on there behind the scenes? Because the data you want to uh, illuminate that. So how do you deal with partisanship? Do you feel you should, uh, or for what you're doing, it's not necessary? Well, uh, clearly in my day job as a lobbyist, you know, partisan views on public policy issues, the bills and budget items that we deal with and that I lobby on for and against, Uh, Obviously, uh, partisan uh, views have to be taken into account and, you know, lobbyists often tailor their main policy arguments to uh, when they're sometimes emphasizing different issues. If you're lobbying a Democrat legislator versus a Republican, and frankly, sometimes uh, within those two parties, right? I mean, each has a, if you will, a left wing and a right wing within their individual parties. In terms of, so for the day job, but, you know, for the the authorship and the, you know, being an adjunct at McGeorge, um, a discussion of partisan politics always has to be a part of it. But When you're talking about the legislative process and the powers, the authority, the duties, the responsibilities of the legislature, for example, in the lawmaking process, a lot of that uh, doesn't need to get into uh, partisanship. You know, even when you talk about the role and the powers of the assembly speaker, for example, um, yeah. in comparison or contrasting with the powers of the Senate committee on rules and the role of the pro tem in the Senate, 
certainly the majority party for many years, a Democrats uh, control those positions. But when you describe their rules and you compare and contrast the operations of the leaders of the two houses, um, that can and should be done in a nonpartisan manner. So, you know, it, it creeps in from time to time, even in the academic world. But, you know, that's not the focus from an educational perspective on the lawmaking process. When you get into sometimes the the uh, uh, the bowels of the legislative process, yeah, the bowels and the gory details, the gory details, you have to you have to share the partisanship that occurs, and and certainly the role of the minority party. And, and as you're well familiar, these last few years where Republicans are actually in the super minority role in both the Assembly yeah, and yeah. the Senate. Um, you have to talk about that, such as, you know, when you pick uh, authors of your legislation and, you know, how impactful the minority party and their views on things are taken into account. But again, uh -huh. the broader view of whether it's bill introductions or final bill actions by the governor or just how does the process work, you know, I try to keep it in portrayed in a nonpartisan way. Um, so, uh, Chris, just one last question: what um, what kind of feedback do you get from your students, uh, law school students? You know, in terms of being interested in politics, wanting to work in the legislature, wanting to work in the political world, or are they, you know, more interested in going into probate and tax law, that kind of thing? You know, tax law, but I mean, yes, what kind of choices? Uh, yeah, well, um, fortunately for me, my class is an elective. So either um, usually third year day or fourth year evening students uh, are enrolled in the course. So being an elective, of course, it's of their choosing as opposed to, you know, your mandatory courses like con law and contracts and property and stuff. The other benefit is, is that McGeorge is the only law school I'm familiar with that has what they call the, their capital lawyering program, where they're offering a number of courses related to uh, capital lawyering. And the terminology is for basically uh, courses that prepare students to work in and around government, be it the state, the federal, the local levels. And so... The answer to your question is, is that uh, most students actually do have a very strong desire to work in government. Every year, um, and I just finished my sixth year, of course I only teach during the fall semester, but the sixth time I've co-taught the lawmaking in California course, uh, every year we have graduates who get hired by legislative council that get hired as lobbyists, that get hired as legislative staff. Two students are actually applying for the Capital Fellows Program to be an Assembly or Senate Fellow. So by no means uh, is it 100% that every student wants to go into you know, politics or government, but the vast majority do. And so it's nice to have enthusiastic students and 
now after a half a dozen years, I can actually call a number of former students colleagues because they're either working in or around the Cali the sorry the capital or you know the executive branch and state agencies, et cetera. Do you have any star pupils you can brag on that have gone on to, you know, did you teach Gavin Gavin Newsom or something like that? No, he went to he went along my my timeline. Um uh, you know, one of my students is uh, a top, she got hired um, by legislative council and she's actually an adjunct now herself at McGeorge. Uh, oh, wow. And she's a, you know, you and I don't see it publicly uh, because their role is behind the scenes, but, you know, from her colleagues, she's a star bill drafter. Um, handling some very interesting areas, including tax and cannabis, uh, for example, um, and absolutely loves, you know, what, what she does, but she was, she graduated near the top of her class and, you know, ledge council, I think is very lucky to, you know, have her. I mean, a lot of those type students uh, go on to, you know, judicial clerkships um, and, you know, other top-notch firms. And instead she was attracted to drafting legislation and working for the state of California. And so the public sector was able to capture her. So that's a great one. Uh, great, Chris McKelly, lobbyist, lawyer, uh, and author. Thank you very much for joining Tim and I today. Thanks, Tim, John. Austin, Thanks, Tim. Thank you very much. Thanks, and uh, we will see folks next time around. Thanks again.